Okay, today's class is built on a premise, and I, I know when I say dating and marriage and relationships, some people get a little squirmy. Um, so here's the premise. If you want a kingdom of glory, if you want to dwell in one of Heavenly Father's kingdoms of glory, glory you do not need anyone else. You may dwell even in the celestial kingdom without anyone else. You don't need anyone else, and you can enjoy any kingdom of glory that you desire. You can go to the celestial kingdom without a spouse or a companion. There are at least two other degrees in the celestial kingdom. No one has to get married in order to enjoy a celestial life. That's our doctrine. Salvation is an individual affair. What kingdom you go to is your choice. How you choose. You don't need to worry about how anyone else chooses. But if you desire exaltation, if that is your goal, if that is what drives you, Exaltation is a family affair. You cannot be exalted without your own family. So I know marriage makes people squirm a little bit, and I'm not trying to box anyone into a corner and say, you have to be married. No one has to be married. You can go to a wonderful kingdom of glory where you will be happy if you choose not to be married. But if your goal is exaltation, exaltation is a family affair. So today's conversation is for those who desire exaltation. If you want to be exalted, you've got to make marriage eternal. So today what I want to do is before we ever really get into a ceiling room and talk about some of the specifics, I want to talk about the Lord's law of eternal marriage. How do you make something eternal? I loved Elder Ballard's talk this last conference, the things of most worth last the longest. Allow me to just kind of put that in a different order for you. The things of most worth to you. You need to do everything in your power to make them last the longest. The reality is the most important thing for me is my marriage and my family. If my marriage ends, then I personally consider everything I did on earth to be a waste. Everything else was nice, but I consider my marriage to be, a, my life to have been a waste if the most important thing in my entire existence comes to an end. And so I am very interested in how to make anything eternal much more so when it's something I value the very most. So how do you make a family eternal? How do you make a marriage eternal? How do you make a partnership last forever? Now, we're going to do the rules. I'm going to let Heavenly Father teach it, not any of us. But go ahead. Any comment you want to make? Yeah. 
Okay, so you're familiar with part of the process. Now, allow me, if it's okay, I love your young women and young men's leaders. I love that, and I know they loved you. And bless their hearts, I love that they taught you. <clears throat> but my observation is some of your young women and young men's leaders planted an idea in your head that I don't think, Heavenly Father, I think he would change the order. So allow me to just start with a blank slate. And let's let Heavenly Father maybe correct what I think is a false idea. Not a false, a misleading, a misprioritized idea that I, I know I was taught. So let me, see, let me see if I can point out what I'm talking to. Let's get Heavenly Father's rule. I want you to hear it from His voice. This is not mine. I don't get to decide what's eternal and what's not. He does. So let's hear it from Him. Turn to Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 7. Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 7. Just this itty-titty, itty little verse. This is the Lord's declaration of how to make anything eternal. All right, anyone want to read for me? Nathan, I'm going to stop you, but just, just get ready for that. So just start reading in verse 7. Pause. Pretty decent list, right? Did he exhaust every option? It's like Joseph had a law degree. All, covenant, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or even expectations. You shouldn't even expect something to last for eternity if it doesn't pass these two tests. No expectation is eternal unless it passed these two tests. So every oath, every covenant, every contract, every bond, every obligation. Now I'm going to tell you right now, the mortgage I signed didn't meet the two requirements. Therefore, it's pretty safe for me to say that in the spirit world, I will owe my mortgage company no money. Now, my poor descendants, that's not so true of them, but I will owe the mortgage company no money because my contract with them did not pass these two tests. Therefore, Nathan, I want you to find the right parentheses and continue reading right there. I'm going to go back and set you up, and then when, when I stop, you pick up on the right parentheses. Ready? So all covenants, all contracts, all bonds, obligations, oaths, Every vow, every single performance, every connection, every association, and every single expectation that don't meet two requirements. Go, Nathan. That are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise of him who is anointed, both as well for time and for all eternity, and that two and that two most holy by revelation and commandment to the medium of mine anointed whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, and I have appointed unto my servant Joseph to hold this power in the last days, and there has never 
but one on the earth at a time on whom this power and keys of the priesthood are conferred. Here we go. Ready? Now we pick it up. Every covenant, every oath, every obligation that doesn't meet those two requirements. Keep going, Nathan. Okay, so Heavenly Father has declared there are two requirements to make anything eternal. Now, allow us, let's simplify. Because I think what, were you, what you were told as the number one is his number two. And no one really talked to you about his number one. So tell me, even what Elder Osink just said, when I asked the question, how do you make anything last for eternity? The Sunday school primary young men, young women answer is, you get sealed. In other words, you make the covenant. And you were taught from the time you were young, it's so important that you marry in the right place. And I don't want to diminish, I don't want to discredit that in any way. It is important. But it's almost as if that was emphasized more than anything else. Get married in the temple. That's the most important thing. Make the covenant. Now read that verse again and tell me what the Lord puts in front of Make the covenant. What is he talking about first? Before he talks about keys and authorities, before he talks about authority of the temple and sealers who have the authority, what does he talk about first? The Holy, the Holy Spirit of promise. It will not last forever unless the Holy Ghost testifies that it should. Unless the Holy Ghost. Now, you've all heard of seals, right? I'm canning peaches. And so I put peaches in. And the last thing I do is what? I put a seal on it, and then it's preserved. The Holy, Holy Ghost is going to put his seal on my marriage. Now, can I ask a blunt, honest question? If you were the Holy Ghost, at what point would you put your seal on my marriage and say, that is now preserved for eternity? Would you put it on the day I made the covenant? Why not? Why not? I made the covenant. Why would you not seal my marriage the moment I made it? That is the misunderstanding that you were taught. The most important thing isn't making the covenant. What would you say the most important thing is? When would the Holy Ghost seal it? When he has sufficient evidence that what? You have kept it. So tell me what order you were taught. When you get married, you need to 
Make the covenant in the right place. Now that's true. I am not trying to diminish that in any way, right? But it's almost like we were taught growing up, hey, make the covenant. Make sure you go to the temple and make the covenant. And no one seemed to talk about what? At least not when I was young. No one seemed to talk about what? Keep the covenant. This seems to be what we were taught. Now looking at verse 7, tell me what's Heavenly Father's order. You want to make it to last forever? What seems to be His highest priority? His number one is keep it. Keep the covenant. That's when the Holy Spirit of promise says, I, I, so I certify, Lord. Bryce and Jen, Bryce and Jennifer, I promise. I give my holy certificate of promise that their marriage is preserved for eternity. You think he's going to do that after a day, a year? There's no way. It would, it would not be honest of him to certify that my marriage is preserved for eternity until sufficient time has passed that he can stand as a testimony that the two of us kept the covenant. Yes, we made it, but we kept it. So I think it's significant in verse 7 that the order is keep it. Oh, and make it. Keep the covenant and make the covenant. Do you see why I think that needs to be in our head a little bit more? Let me ask it this way. James, I'm coming to you. I won't forget. Which one of these two? So I'm gonna, I'm, this is what I'm asking to erase. And this is what I'd like to be emblazed in our mind. Let me ask you a question. Which of those two is the easiest to fix if it's broken? Which is the easiest to fix? How hard would it be if someone had never made the covenant to fix that? One day. We do that with the dead every single day, don't we? We take their names to the temple and we make the covenant for them. But how hard is this one to fix if it was never done? Can we take their names to the temple and boom, all of a sudden they kept the covenant over, their, over years and decades? So if this is the easiest one to fix, which one should we focus our lives on? The fact that I made it? or the fact that I keep it. Do you see why I, I point that out? Now, I think everyone should go to the temple to get married in the first place. It's just your marriage starts off in a better place. I promise you that. But if you were to ask me for my children, which one I want more than anything, I want my children to keep the covenant, even if they haven't made the covenant. This we can fix. This one we can't. 
So given that, let's define them. I want to define this one first because it's the easiest to fix. What does it mean to make the covenant? Go ahead, James. So I've got like, two things. One thing is, I feel like this, the opposite was taught for almost every covenant you made. Yeah. Up until... Go to the temple. You know, and then... Or get baptized. Or like, even on the mission. It's like, teach baptism. But I can't imagine if it had been like, okay, hey, we're going to actually take six, six weeks and see if you'll keep the covenant before it's even made. And then how much more converted someone could be. Yeah. Keep it. And then one other thought too is just that maybe that's why the principle of become the person you want to marry works so well. I'm already keeping it. Mm -hmm. I'm already trying to be the person that's keeping the covenant. Can I do this long before I do this? Yes. I think that's significant. Now, young women's theme. You notice the change? Make and keep sacred covenants. Make and keep sacred covenants. Okay, so let's talk about make. What does he mean by make? Let's go back to what we just read. What is the making of it? So after the Holy Spirit of promise, of him who is anointed, both as well as time and in eternity, to do something, anointed to do something. And there's never more than one person on this earth who's anointed to do this. Let's fill in that blank and talk about what is it that they're anointed to do. Let's talk about jurisdiction. Can a South Jordan police officer pull me over and cite me, give me a ticket in West Jordan? He can pull me over. Can he give me a ticket in West Jordan? Why not? He has the equipment. He has the know-how. He understands the law. What does he lack in West Jordan that would prevent him from citing me? He, he lacks authority. He is beyond the borders. His authority ended when? When he went out of South Jordan. The moment he crossed out of South Jordan, his authority ended. He has no authority in West Jordan. He has the tools. He has the know-how, he lacks the authority and cannot cite me in West Jordan. Now, is there someone who can cite me in South Jordan and West Jordan? Yes, because what are the boundaries of his authority? The county. I could be cited by a county trooper in both South Jordan and West Jordan because both of those are within his authority. But the moment that trooper steps outside of Salt Lake County, guess what? No authority. Is there someone who has authority in Salt Lake County and any other county in the state of Utah? Yes, who would it be? A highway patrol, a state trooper, because his authority extends to where? The boundaries of the state of Utah. Is there someone who could cite me in and out of the state of Utah? Who? A federal agent whose authority extends where? The entire United States. Is there anyone on this planet who could cite me in the United States and also in another country? No. This planet has no one with global authority. No one has global authority on this planet. Only national authority. 
So anyone with authority who steps out of the boundaries of their country has how much authority? None. None. Is the president of the United States, does he have any authority in Ukraine? No. They may respect him as a foreign dignitary, but he can't arrest anyone in Ukraine, could he? So let me go beyond that. What if I want my marriage to go past the boundaries of this life? What does that mean? Someone has to come whose authority is beyond the boundaries of this life. Someone beyond this life has to grant someone in this life that authority. And let's be very clear. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints definitively declares that on April 3rd, 1836, Elijah, who has that authority beyond the boundaries of this life, came and gave that to one Joseph Smith. From Joseph, it was passed to Brigham Young, from Brigham Young to John Taylor, to Wilford Woodruff, to Lorenzo Snow, and eventually that authority was passed to Russell Marion Nelson, and he is the chief holder of that authority. Anyone who wants to exercise that authority has to use Russell Nelson's permission, has to get Russell Nelson's permission. When I was sealed, Ezra Taft Benson held that authority. My grandfather was a sealer in the Jordan River Temple. My wife and I wanted to be sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. Could my grandfather just go to the Salt Lake Temple and seal us? How much authority did he have in the Salt Lake Temple? Zero, unless I have a letter from Ezra Taft Benson granting my grandfather the authority to seal my wife in the Salt Lake Temple. Now, can he go into the Salt Lake Temple and seal us? That's make the covenant. You must make the covenant under the authority of someone whose boundaries are beyond this life. And it is my testimony to you, it is this church's declaration to all of you that that authority only exists in the hands of Russell Nelson. And he has authorized that authority to be used in the sealing rooms of, this te of the temples. Nowhere else can you make a covenant that passes that test. Made by the authority of someone whose limits are not this life. Okay, there's make. Now let's talk about keep. What covenant? What is this? What is that? Let's define that. Has anyone ever defined what is the marriage covenant? Interesting. Your, your silence is interesting. What is the covenant that makes a marriage last for eternity? First, it's the words of the ceremony. It's the words of the ceremony at the time the covenant is made. That's clearly part of the covenant I am promising. So I would encourage every one of you before 
and after you're married to hear the sealing covenant. Go watch a sealing. Go do sealings in the temple. Hear the words. Know what you're promising. But what else? May I suggest that there are some implied promises you're making in the act of the ceremony. Now we've talked about this, right? Every ordinance has two pieces. Do you remember what the two pieces are? A covenant and a token. So when I was baptized, I made the covenant and then I went down in the water. The token is teaching me something about the covenant. So the words of the ceremony are the covenant part of it. The token of the ceremony is very much what I am promising. So let's do a little symbolism. Those of you who've been to the temple should be familiar with the symbol of the square and the symbol of the compass. Does that ring a bell to all of you? Now, when I say the word compass, how many of you think this? I did it wrong. I'm looking backwards. No, east, west, that's right. North? Okay. But you, you think compass like this, right? Pointing to a direction. But I want you to think about the symbol that's on you. Is the symbol that's on you a circle with a needle in it? There's another compass. Besides this one, what does the word compass mean? Think back to elementary school or middle school or maybe high school, depending on when you took geometry or trigonometry. And you probably used a compass, right? Now, what symbol is on you? This one or this one? This is the symbol that's on you. The symbol of the compass. Now, tell me how to use this. Tell me how to use a compass. Tell me you were taught how to use a compass. How do you use a compass? You put one of those into a center point that becomes the center, and the other one encompasses the circle around it. The symbol of the, the, symbol of the compass says that everywhere there's a circle, everywhere there's a circle, there was a center point that drew that circle. This symbol is asking you, what is the circle pointing at? Again, that is the... <laughs> that is the sweetest little sneeze I've ever heard in my entire life. So I want to point out some very fascinating things that are pretty standard church. We, we publish these in pictures. Every picture I'm about to show you, I got off the official church website, not, not held secret. These pictures come from the church. 
Okay, so let me show you some fascinating pictures. Ready? Here's a ceiling room. Beautiful ceiling room. I noticed years ago that carved into the carpet around every single altar is either a square or a circle, so to speak. It may not be exact, but bear with it. It's not shaped evenly. This one is a square. You see that carved into the carpet? Here's another ceiling room. Carved into the carpet, a square. Here's another ceiling room. This one's more roundish, a circle. The ceiling room where I was sealed has a circle. Now, those of you who've been to a ceiling, I want you to think of the token. I want you to think of what that circle is pointing at. Now, let's talk a little bit about the symbolism of tokens. Turn with me to the scriptures. I'm going to read. I'm safe to read out of the scriptures, so I'm going to read from the scriptures. Those of you who have an eye to see will see. Isaiah chapter 22. Let's talk about Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. Here's the situation in Isaiah 22. I'll bring this up so we can do this together. King Hezekiah is the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel is a symbol both of Jesus and the Father. This one, it's more appropriate to look at him as a symbol of the Father. The king of Israel represents the king of heaven. Hezekiah represents the king of heaven. And Hezekiah has a servant that has not been very faithful. So Isaiah is going to go fire him. Verse 15, go get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, and say, you're fired. The king's servant has been dishonest. He's been letting the wrong people in to see the king. He took bribes, and so he's fired. So the person they're hiring is this man named Eliakim. Eliakim is going to become the king's servant. Now, I want you to begin to see the symbolism. If God the Father is the king, who is the king's servant? Who is the king's servant that allows people to come in and out of seeing the king? Who gets to determine who sees God and who doesn't? Eliakim is a symbol of Jesus. I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. The servant has authority. And I love this one, verse 22, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Eliakim gets to decide who sees the king and who doesn't. Jesus gets to decide who sees the king and who doesn't. They have the key of the house of David. Now, Eliakim, you can trust. He's a good man. He's honorable. He is a nail in a sure place. Now, what do you know about a nail in a sure place? 
If I'm hanging something on a nail in a sure place, it won't fall. On Eliakim, we can hang all the glory of his father's kingdom because he is a nail in a sure place. Now, do you, who are they really talking about here? On whom can we hang all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our aspirations? On whom can I hang every hope in my heart? I can hang them on Jesus because what is Jesus? A nail in a sure place. Now that becomes a very symbolic phrase. Elder Holland, I'm just going to quote Elder Holland. He's an apostle. Just going to quote Elder Holland. I'm just being safe here. Nice and safe. Elder Holland said, um, Okay, we'll just read it out of his book. Sorry, I thought I had it there. Let me take it from here. I put it in here. Sorry. I put it in here. Old Testament. Isaiah 22. All right, ready? This is Elder Holland. Anyone want to read? Please. When the Roman soldiers drove their four and one half inch crucifixion spikes into their victim's flesh, they did so first in the open palm. But because the weight of the body might tear that flesh and not sustain the burden to be carried, they also drove nails into the wrist, down into the nexus of bones and sinews that would not tear no matter what the weight. Thus, the nail in the wrist was the nail in a shirt. So the nail in the wrist is a symbol that Jesus will never let you down. He will never fail you. Now, I want you to think of holding on to Jesus like that. That's a covenant I make with Christ. He promises to be a nail in a sure place. But what's he implying here. Tell me what this whole verse is implying. He is a nail in a sure place for me, therefore what? Therefore what? What does he ask of me? Will I be a nail in a sure place for him? Can Jesus count on you? Can he hang his hopes on you? That's how we covenant with him. I will be a nail in a sure place for you. And Jesus says, will you be in a nail in a sure place for me? Now, there is only one other person. I hold that way. There's only one other person with whom I make that token. Who is it? So tell me what I covenanted to be. The day I was sealed and the Lord drew a circle around us. What was he pointing to? What was he asking me? What did I covenant Jennifer? 
I said to her, what? I promise to be a nail in a sure place. I promise to be the kind of husband that you can count on. You can hang upon me all your hopes because I won't let them fall. That's what I promised. That's why that is so sacred. Not just the words of the ceremony, but the token of the ceremony. Now, I am an imperfect man and I don't live up to that all the time, but I try and I repent and we seek forgiveness and we keep trying and we work on it. But the covenant I am trying to keep, the covenant that the Holy Ghost is going to seal is that Bryce was a nail in a sure place for her. He was trustworthy of her hopes and her dreams and her heart. Do you see the symbol? Do you see the covenant? All right, let's add to it. What else is the covenant I'm supposed to keep? Here's an interesting insight. Many, many years ago, when I was married, the sealer would kind of give you his own personal advice and then he'd seal you. The last year that has changed. My father-in-law is a sealer and he, I have three sealed children. He has sealed all three of my sealed children. I've seen all three ceremonies. Now the first two, he gave great advice. The last one, this last summer, when he sealed my son, he stood up and said, look, we've been, in, we've been instructed not to give our own personal advice anymore. We no longer give personal advice. Do you know what they do instead? Anyone been to a ceiling lately? They went, they repeat the endowment, the endowment covenants. They are to remind us of the five covenants you made in the endowment room. Why would we make that change? What is the Lord saying with this? That part of keeping the covenant is what? Everything we did in the endowment room. The covenant I made with Jennifer is to obey and sacrifice and obey the law of the gospel and obey the law of chastity. It's everything that I did in the endowment room. And don't you think by implication, it's also the initiatory. It's every temple covenant I've made is part of the covenant I am to keep. Now, when I was endowed, I was taught about Adam and Eve and the rib. Do you remember we talked briefly about the symbolism of that rib? My wife is like my rib. How is my wife like my rib? Tell me what you see in the symbolism of the rib. Why is my, how is my wife like my rib? She's always at my side. If God had taken Eve from Adam's foot, where would that have placed his wife? Are there men that place their wives below them? That is a violation of the covenant 
to place my wife below me is a violation of the covenant. To put her behind me, for her to put herself in front of me, or for her to put herself above me, violations of the covenant. Where did God put Adam and Eve? Side by side. If I don't keep my wife at my side, I break the covenant. Why else the ribs? Tell me what the ribs are supposed to do. I am to protect her heart. The covenant is that I will protect her heart. No one on this planet loves that woman more than I do. Not her parents, not her children. No one on this planet loves that woman more than I do. And the truth is, no one on this planet could hurt her more than I could. And I covenanted to do what? To protect that heart. That's the covenant. To be a rib that will protect. You see all that beautiful symbolism that was rolled into the endowment? Let God teach you the covenant every time you go to the temple. At my side, nearest to my heart, protecting that heart, under my wing, beautiful symbols. The endowment is part of the covenant. So you wanna make something eternal, make it. Make it under the authority whose boundaries are beyond this life. Make the right covenant. But then what's far more important than that? Keep it. And when you break it, you repent and you ask for forgiveness and you try again. And you get better. Let me leave you with one of my absolute favorite moments from General Conference. You know, when a man, when a 70 turns 70, we, re we retire them. If you're an apostle, you're in till you die. Sorry, no releasing from the quorum of the 12. Death is your release. If you're a 70, you're released when you're 70 years old. We give, we give you emeritus status. I love to watch the emeritus 70s give their last talk. It means more to me because this is their last talk. This is their swan song. This is them going out teaching what I believe is the most important doctrine that they think is worth mentioning one more time. In one of those moments, <clears throat> one of my favorite general authorities throughout his life, he was given emeritus status. His name was F. Burton Howard. Where are you? F. Burton Howard. This was his last talk. Follow along with me. Most of all, I think eternal marriage cannot be achieved without a commitment to make it work. Most of what I know about this, I learned from my companion. We have been married for almost 47 years now. From the beginning, she knew what kind of marriage she wanted. We started as poor college students, but her vision for our marriage was exemplified by a set of silverware. As is common today, when we, when we married, she registered with a local department store. Instead of listing all the pots and pans and appliances we needed and hoped to receive, she chose another course. She asked for silverware. 
She chose a pattern and a number of place settings and listed knives, forks, and spoons on the wedding registry and nothing else. No towels, no toasters, no television, just knives, forks, and spoons. The wedding came and went. Our friends and our parents' friends gave gifts. We departed for a brief honeymoon and decided to open the presents when we returned. When we did so, we were shocked. There was not a single knife or fork in the lot. We joked about it and went on with our lives. Two children came along while we were in law school. We had no money to spare, but when my wife worked as a part-time election judge or when someone gave her a few dollars for her birthday, she would quietly set it aside. When she had enough, she would go to town and buy a fork or a spoon. It took us several years to accumulate enough pieces to use them. When we finally had service for four, we began to invite some of our friends for dinner. Before they came, we would have a little discussion in the kitchen. Which utensils would we use, the battered and mismatched stainless or the special silverware? In those days, I would often vote for the stainless. It was easier. You could just throw it in the dishwasher after the meal and it took care of itself. The silver, on the other hand, was a lot of work. My wife had it hidden away under the bed where it could not easily be found by a burglar. She had insisted that I buy a tarnish-free cloth to wrap it in. Each piece, was separate, it, each piece was in a separate pocket, and it was no easy task to assemble all the pieces. When the silver was used, it had to be hand-washed and dried so that it would not spot, and put back in the pocket so that it would not tarnish, and wrapped up and carefully hidden again so it would not get stolen. If any tarnish was discovered, I was sent to buy silver polish, and together we carefully rubbed the stains away. Over the years, we added to the set, and I watched with amazement how she cared for the silver. My wife was never one to get angry easily. However, I remember the day when one of our children somehow got hold of one of the silver forks and wanted to use it to dig up the backyard. That attempt was met with a fiery glare and a warning not to even think about it, ever. I noticed that the silverware never went to the many war dinners she cooked and never accompanied the many meals she made and sent to others who were sick or needy. It never went on picnics and it never went camping. In fact, it never went anywhere, and as time went by, it didn't even come to the table very often. Some of our friends were weighed in the balance and found wanting, and they didn't even know it. They got the, silver, they got the stainless when they came to dinner. The time came when we were called to go on a mission. I arrived home one day and I was told I needed to rent a safe deposit box for the silver. She didn't want to take it with us. She didn't want to leave it behind and she didn't want to lose it. For years, I thought she was just a little bit eccentric. And then one day I realized what she had known for a long time. Something that I was just beginning to understand. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. I need to read that again. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. You shield it and protect it. You never abuse it. You don't expose it to the elements. You don't make it common or ordinary. If it becomes tarnished, you lovingly polish it until it gleams like new. It becomes special because you made it so. And it grows more beautiful and precious as time goes by. 
Eternal marriage is just like that. We need to treat it that way. Allow me to suggest a thought to you. It's not God that makes it eternal. It's not the Holy Spirit of promise that makes it eternal. You make it eternal by the way you treat it. You make it last by the way you treat it. Keep the covenant. Even before you've made the covenant. And then when you do make it, keep it. That is far more important than this. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to repent now before you've even made it, repent now. Make and keep the covenant. And that's why it lasts for eternity. Because you make it last. I bear you my testimony. The most important thing in my whole existence is to make the thing that matters the most to me last the longest. That means of all the things in my life, that I treat the best. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.